Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we welcome master English saddle maker and leather expert Susie Fletcher. Susie is best known as the resident leather expert on the BBC's repair shop, which follows a workshop where broken or damaged family heirlooms are brought back to life by master craftsmen. Her early life was idyllic and her own love of animals was a constant force in her younger years, horses being especially important to Susie. But she struggled with dyslexia, which made school tough, even though she was bright. Her focus instead turned to craft, following in her father's footsteps. He was a horologist, but Susie's craft wasn't watches, it was saddles for horses. She would go on to work on harnesses for many state events and built a strong reputation for saddle making and leatherwork. And her love of the craft continues from the joy she gets from restoring people's sentimental objects on the repair shop. Every story brings something that I really feel within that story. It can be as simple as a lovely gentleman called Peter. At the end of it, he just turned around to me and he said, thank you for letting me talk about my dad. We don't get the chance to do that often. And I just thought that was a really gentle sentiment to say, and it came from his heart. What did you make of Susie's early life? It was obviously a really idyllic, happy childhood. Growing up in rural Oxfordshire with her horse, she was very close to her brother. There wasn't a lot of money. She talks about how there wasn't heating in their house and it would often be really cold when they woke up in the morning. But it was a really beautiful place and she seemed very happy. But her luck changed, didn't it, when she went to America, which at first was a great opportunity for her. She was in Boulder in Colorado. But then she met this man and... Really, he took over her life and her future. The first time he was violent, boy, I was shocked. But I knew I was in trouble. I just, I sensed it the instant the incident happened that triggered him. And I did run the wrong way through my house to where there was no escape. And I knew as I ran that way, what are you doing? You know, it's really weird when you look back and you you think about all these things and you go... How could that have happened? Susie talked a lot about the physical abuse, including she was once lifted off her feet by her neck. But it was a psychological torment that left her feeling so alone. I mean, he completely isolated her from her family and friends. 
She's written a memoir now called The Sun Over the Mountains and I think she's done it because she wants to explain to other people why women do get trapped in these relationships and she wants other women who are trapped in them to understand that there is a way out but also to understand that somebody else can see what they're going through and can feel the same and that they're not alone. We know so much more about gaslighting and and these these terms of grooming and codependency and coercive behavior these are terms that i now know mm. i didn't know then mm. i i couldn't rationalize this behavior at all this was a man who loved me mm. so i must have deserved that was how i started to behave and she covered up for him so much that sense that he obviously did feel inadequate but he was trying to make her feel so small and i think you know even when the family tried to get involved she protected him from them and he would lie about her family and she didn't find out until a long time later but even then she kept she kept the faith in him and when he was dying she did too she didn't want him to feel that the whole relationship had been a disaster i don't think she wanted to feel that that relationship had been a disaster because she'd invested so much of her life in it. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. I am so grateful for everything that's ever happened and I'm really loving life and I'm still very enthusiastic to what's coming around the corner. And I, I feel really energised every, every day. I still feel incredibly energised. I think having had all these experiences have created the person that I feel I am today. And it is the moment that you're in today that really matters. Susie started by telling us about the repair shop and her role on the programme. Well, my role is I repair anything that is leather or leather related. And just through history, leather has been used in multiple applications. And even the producers of the repair shop in the early days, when they invited me to join the show, they thought, oh, you'll be on once or twice. And, you know, we might be able to find you a few things. Then they realised how much leather has been used in all sorts of different applications. It's not just a leather saddle or a leather bag, or it's, you know, with um, with washers, leather washers are used, or in instruments, there's little bits of leathers used. So within this beautiful family of the repair shop, you've got all these different artisans that are able to repair items. But the crux of the repair shop is a member of the public coming in to share their story with us that revolves around the item that they brought into repair. So on so many levels, it's a very lovely, generous, kind, listening to people and their stories and then being able to do something for them that continues the ability for that story to be told in this item. And who knew that that would take off like a rocket, mm -hmm. but it really has and it's resonated with so many people, not just in the UK, but throughout the entire world. And you joined when you were 60, didn't you? Were you almost looking for a form of repair or a safe haven? Or Actually, I, I was 56 when okay. I joined, yes. Yeah, so, so I joined as I relocated back to the UK, intending to have a very quiet time, having had quite a lively time in the US. And five weeks after arriving in the UK, I was walking through those barn doors going... What am I doing here? <laughs> How did they persuade me to do this? But um, hats off to them. I am really grateful for what they were able to do. And, and, and it's definitely been a huge part of me 
dealing with a lot of my own personal story. Um, which heirloom is the one that you found most intriguing or which story has there been one? Because there are some very complicated lives. Are those the ones that you're drawn to most? It's interesting. It's very hard for me to say that it's one category or one area. Every story brings something that I really feel within that story. It can be as simple as a lovely gentleman called Peter. At the end of it, he just turned around to me and he said, thank you for letting me talk about my dad. We don't get the chance to do that often. And I just thought that was a really gentle sentiment to say, and it came from his heart. And he was so proud to say that, that his item, which was a little leather elephant called Pookie has stayed in my brain, which, you know, not everything stays there. You know, and these these are the people that come to mind. It's it's the people and and how brave they were in sharing some of their very difficult stories. Some of them are hugely difficult. Um, Wendy is another one who came in when she was very, very ill, she's terminally ill, and she's just one of these people that had this aura around her and Boy, did we connect and and we went through the rest of her life in regular communication until her eventual passing. And and I just felt really honoured to have got to meet such a beautiful person. In a way, it sounds as if it's as much about the emotions as the objects. And you had yourself an 18-year abusive marriage and you poignantly said it battered your self-confidence and your soul. Is that why you kind of like this idea of giving objects a second chance, if you like, or helping people to bring them back to life? I think it's it's just inherently in my nature is to see value in everything. And I'm quite happy with the simple things in life. But I also look at things like if we look at objects, I look at them from the design point of view. It's like somebody actually sat down and designed that and sort of go down that rabbit little rabbit hole. And I'm a designer. I like designing and creating because it's very healing and very enlightening it gives you a lot of self-esteem when you produce something and then with people like with my husband I mean basically there was a person that had 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 a lot of troubles in his younger years and it had made him a person who was quite insecure and quite challenged in certain behavioral aspects and I remained very loyal to him and very loving to him and always loved him and never changed my views of him. He was the way he was. And I am interested in people and why they are the way that they are because we're all individuals and we all are the people that we are because of circumstances. Mm. So um, I'm going around this in a very (laughs) roundabout way. A lot to answer there. And what was the original question? (laughs) Well, actually, we'd like to take you back to your childhood and talk about how your childhood sort of shaped you and made you the person that you are. And you're very tough and resilient, but also very empathetic. What were your early years like? Because they sounded pretty idyllic. Yes, they, they, they were. Although we grew up with family challenges, as every family did, really, if you get to to the nuts and bolts, it was idyllic. My parents remained married through all of their lives. I was the last of four, which came with its own challenges because I wasn't supposed to be here, basically. (laughs) But, you know, my parents showed the resilience of, you know, we've got four mouths to feed. My father was a very humble watchmaker. You know, they they struggled to make ends meet. So as children, we grew up being, you know, very aware that in order to 
to be able to function, you know, everybody has to realize that there are responsibilities as you grow up. But we also had lots of freedom. I mean, Steve, my brother, who's on the repair shop, he's the horologist. He and I often talk about the freedoms that we had as children. It literally was out the door, come back for meals. And that was how it worked. And and so we spent a lot of time in the countryside and you know, just doing whatever children do in the countryside. Mm. But we didn't have a lot of the material things. Is which... it right there wasn't any heating in the house, for example? No, there wasn't. No, no. I mean, and that wasn't unusual at all, mm. at all. Um, no, my first home, it was that typical thing of in the morning, you'd scratch your name on the ice that formed on the inside because that was what you did as children. Right. And then... Uh, I do remember when my parents bought another home, they did put central heating in and we were just like, whoa, <laughs> this is this is amazing. But of course you had to be able to afford the central heating. So mm. only a certain room was kept warm again mm. and we still had very cold bedrooms, but that's fine. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was just the way it was. You know, and you were very much a tomboy, weren't you? Huge. Sort of happiest climbing trees yeah. rather yeah. than being in school. Do you think you always knew you were unconventional? Were you always very creative? It's interesting. I always felt different. I realised that I could sort of put a foot in any camp, that maybe I had a personality that was unthreatening or just curious and interested, but I'm more of a wallflower. You know, I tend to be a little bit more reserved than, than out there sort of character. So I was very comfortable on my own, but I also would be happy to join a gang, but I wouldn't be like a leader. And I was very much, you know, let's go with what you say. So... I think I experimented a lot as a child and was happy to to be out in the countryside many, many hours spent riding my poor pony, Jess. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> that pony, what he went through. But it gave me that freedom and just learning to find your own path. So I was lucky. And you were also very dyslexic, weren't you? Mm. Do you now think that's an advantage because it gives you this kind of different way of seeing the world and ability to think outside the box? Yes. The more we're learning about all of these different brain functions, the more we're seeing that there are huge benefits to it. Whereas, you know, at school, I was just, um, my report would say, you know, friendly, uh, sporty and arty, but not the brightest pencil in the box mm. sort of thing, mm. which in those days, again, it was a bit of a put down, you know, mum and dad were like, dear, what a shame, mm. she's not bright. But in fact, I'm quite bright. And for some reason, I decided to go back to further education as an adult. And that's when this whole thing about being dyslexic came so up. So you had no idea when you were I know, I had no idea. I just knew that I wasn't very good at this, this maths and, and English. And yet I'm phenomenally good at maths. I was doing it in my work and didn't realise that I see... The, um, the the answers, patterns. the mm. patterns. Thank it's very you. Very dyslexic, isn't it? Yes. So once you you understand your brain works this way, then the confidence comes. But I but I was able to do the formal exams for maths, English literature, and English language, and it was through Oxford Brooks, okay. which is quite well known. And um, yeah, I got a gold star on all of them. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not not academic after all. My brain just works in another way. And your first word was horse. I'm a real horse obsessive. So yeah, <laughs> you get it. Where did your love of horses come from? Do you know, or was it innate? I believe it was from my grandmother. 
she's the lady that although she never rode herself i recently learned that she would bring the horses up from the stables to hitch up to the fire wagon uh, for the fire brigade you know when they had the old hand pump that was horse drawn she used to bring the horses up i never knew that her house was decorated with everything to do with horses um and so because of that love it was my grandfather that that helped facilitate me being able to go to riding school, which of course was an expense that my parents weren't able to facilitate themselves. And eventually he did buy me my pony. My riding instructor said to me, you're sort of getting to the point where you've got some really good skills, you know, in order for you to go further, it'd be really nice if you could have your own pony. And I knew that wouldn't happen. So I put an advert in the, the local paper saying um, very experienced rider looking for a horse or pony to ride in a surrounding area because I was willing to ride my bicycle wherever it was and the telephone number and uh, so I got this call and I remember I remember the name of the person and I remember everything about that day and we went out to see this pony that was kept behind a pub in a village and the, the actual owner was at university somewhere and the pony needed somebody to look after it. And so that's how Jess came into my life. So I was there just to look after him and then then they sold him. And then my granddad was like, wow, I was so upset, I was heartbroken. And uh, he made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. <laughs> Basically he gazumped <laughs> and good old granddad. And I mean, talk about uh, what a lovely thing to do. I mean, it really was. But it came with provisors that I got a job. And I was about 13, 14 at the time. So um, I just talk about my dad giving me a filing job for his business. And of course, I'm dyslexic. So that didn't go down <laughs> terribly well when he couldn't find invoices because I'm like, why doesn't W go in R? <laughs> of course it does. But uh, yeah, I would do anything to to, to earn some money. And, um, and it all went to keep Jess. Mm. So, I mean, that was a great lesson that my parents taught me is the things you want in life you need to work for and and that in turns brings such a lot of value and self-worth as well I mean you know, it, it's it's nice to have those dreams that perhaps one day I could possibly have a pony but to learn that you can't have things given you it's you have mm. to work for it too great lesson in life and what was your relationship with Jester like was he was it different to I mean how does it compare to your friendships with humans oh gosh <laughs> doesn't even compare <laughs> Anyone that has a relationship with an animal will have their own interpretation of that. And, and it's very special. But this, this relationship between man and horse, particularly women and horses, has been studied quite in depth. And it's a different relationship. There's, a, a, there's a, an empathy and an understanding on both sides. And for me as a child, he gave me my wings. I mean, I had my transportation in Jess, as I say, I could pop on him. And at the weekends, we literally would ride all day long or I'd ride to a ford and, and just take the saddle off and let him graze on the bank and I'd be playing and just paddling and maybe I'd go with a friend with their horse too. And you always expected the horse to be there. You never expected him to run away. You never did. I mean, that was the amazing thing. When I look back at it now, it's like, gosh, I wouldn't do that now. One of the local pubs in one of the villages, they just put up a, a rail for us to tie the horses to so we could have our, our 
fizzy pop and our packet of crisps and, <laughs> and, and things like that. I mean, and, and it was rain or shine. We would go out. It didn't matter. Mm. Um, that's all I ever wanted to do. I wasn't interested in anything else. And it did take all of my time. And even on those days where it was absolutely tipping down with rain and howling with wind. And you made your first saddle for your doll's horse, didn't you? What was that like? Why did you do that? Saddles have been something that have always interested me. I was instantly drawn to saddles um, going in the tack shop or in the tack room of the, the riding school. It was really saddles that for some reason captivated my imagination and more than happy to clean them, which meant I always had a job at the riding school. There is something about just leather, keeping it supple and fit for purpose. I just knew instinctively. Was it the smell as well? Smell, oh my gosh, yeah, the smell is gorgeous. Unfortunately, I'm quite nose blind to it now because I've been around it so much. Everybody's in, they can smell leather on me because I'm surrounded by it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it's a, love, it's a lovely material. So the, the draw to saddles was something that came very early on and to sort of figure out how to make one for, I think it was my Cindy doll and I had a rocking horse and things like that. And I got more and more involved <laughs> in it. And it's like, this is it, this is what I want to do. And it wasn't until- It must've been tiny though. For the yeah, and I've still got it. I, I, I haven't got the first one, but I've got the like Mark III where mm. it actually has a tree in it. Do you think part of it was because your dad made watches and that he was repairing them? And did you get a sense that that was quite normal to be making, creating and doing something? And that could be something you could do as a career or a job? It was something that we grew up with. I mean, mum, she was the uh, fashion horse. She loved designing and making clothes. And, and she actually had won a scholarship to come to London to study at fashion school when she was 17, but her dad wouldn't let her come. She was his only child and, and that's just the way it was in those days. So that was a bit disappointing for her because she had all of this artistic flair in herself and I definitely inherited a lot of that. And then seeing dad nuts and bolts, you know, with these tiny little bits that make up watches and all the little tools and he would have all these glasses on and, you know, just see him day after day working solitary in the workshop. And my granddad, he worked on clocks and also uh, when he was retired he never he never retired retired he would work on gramophones and radios and things like that so I grew up surrounded by people that made and repaired so it was quite normal for me to be also trying to fix things it felt very natural and you then trained as a master saddler did Mm. that also feel like the obvious thing to do it's quite a niche choice Yes, it, it was. And in the 70s, where women weren't necessarily going to become masters. Were you it, the only woman there? Oh, um, no, no, I wasn't. It was at the era where things were changing. And Ken Langford, who was my local saddle maker, who, who really introduced me into it, I had my place at Cordwainers College in Hackney before I left school, which was a plus. For me, it was very comfortable. It seemed the right place to be. I didn't have to question it for one moment. And I look back at it now and I think how fortunate was I to have found my niche at that early stage of Mm -hmm. life. Because I think when you have sort of dyslexic issues and people don't understand you, it's quite easy to sort of get lost in not feeling good enough and, and not making the grade. You know, we all need our own 
self-esteem, not in an egotistical way, but we need self-esteem to function and feel capable to take the next step forward. So I am hugely grateful for all that happened and, and how it sort of developed. And you were soon so good at what you did that you were working as the harness maker, well, with the harness maker to the late queen. How did that come about? Happy accidents. My life is full of happy accidents. If it wasn't for people and and the stars aligning, I mean, none of this would have happened. And that came about through, again, my brother, Steve. He happened to know some people who were getting together this harness making company and they were going to have it in Whitney, Oxfordshire. And they knew that I was a saddle maker and I'd done a bit of harness. And, and they asked Steve to ask me if I would like to join this team. And I thought, I really need to learn more about harness. So I'd pretty much got as far as I could get working with Ken. And he was all for it. I mean, he's yeah, yeah, go forward because the more you can experience, the better you're going to be. So I ended up working with Bill Turner, William Turner, who was then the Royal Warrant to the Muse. Fabulous opportunity. I mean, we, we had to re-leather several of the uh, sets of harness that are hanging up in the Royal Muse now. And I think it was last year I popped in there and I uh, said to Francis, who I'd worked with, I said, so which is the harness that I've worked on? <laughs> she went over there and I had a look and I went, oh, I could see my work and I was just like so thrilled. The only person on the planet was thrilled if he was thrilled <laughs> was me, but it didn't matter. It's that there was my work there in that showcase and I actually felt, that's so cool. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Susie Fletcher. So what drove you to Boulder, Colorado? Was it about the horses and the ranches and the cowboys? Again, that was just a happy accident. I had previous year been in Illinois there, just looking at potentially staying there to work on an invitation through someone that I'd done work for and I met Linda at a trade show and Linda had heard that I'd sort of gone back to the UK while things were being sorted out and she said any chance you'd want to come to Boulder Colorado and I went yeah why not so she did the paperwork and I ended up going there and it was crazy (laughs) (laughs) what were your first impressions oh gosh well I arrived in May and it's beautiful. A springtime in Boulder, Colorado. Everything, spring comes quite late in Colorado opposed to here. Beautiful mountain ranges just flying into Denver International. And you can see the Rockies that, that go north and south through the whole state. Mind-blowing. And the vastness of it, it's just 
beautiful. And can you remember the first time you met Rob, your future husband? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what funny. happened? Well, what happened was <laughs> the night before it all started with Linda introducing me to margaritas. Uh, <laughs> and you've never had one before. <laughs> and, um, at high altitude. And I'm such a lightweight when it comes to alcohol. Yes, I was walking off a hangover the following day, walking up Pearl Street, which is a pedestrian walkway in in Boulder, Colorado. It was just one of those idyllic spring days where the sun was shining, it was the right temperature, and everybody was out having a good time, and lots of street entertainers. So I was just entertained while I was walking off this hangover. I was walking, (laughs) walking along, I think it's Stefan Wolf, Bad to the Bone is the track that always comes to mind. And there was this guy walking towards me with this swagger. And it was, just, <laughs> he had presence. I mean, he was tall and blonde. And he had these wonderful shades on, blonde moustache with the stubble. I mean, we're talking the 90s. He was wearing shorts and a cut off t shirt and high top white boots. And he had this incredible tan and these muscles. I mean, it was just like, you couldn't help. I mean, I'm sorry, I just couldn't help but notice him. I thought, oh, he's nice. We walked past each other and then I turned to look and he had turned to look too. And eventually we got to meet and chat. And that, that's how I met Rob. So, where was your first date? It was that night. Mm. He came and picked me up and drove me into Denver. And we went dancing because he liked to dance. I loved to dance. It was incredible. It wasn't very often that I got to meet men who liked to dance. Mm. You know, they'd have to have several drinks in them before they'd get up and dance. But no, he likes music too. So yeah, we definitely hit it off on many levels. So yeah, it was nice. But he was also tri- tricky on that first date. Did any alarm bells ring then that he might be complicated? Um, it was the second date that I realised that there was two sides to this person. And he um, came pick me up on the following Tuesday, straight from work. So he was quite grubby, tired. Yeah, very tired and not in the best of moods and quite snippy with me. And he had been drinking while he'd driven over. And I was just thinking, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. So maybe I'll just get out at this, you know, when he gets to the bottom of the road, I'm going to hop out and say, Adios, amigo. But he didn't stop at the stop sign, so I couldn't get out. And then I really, the alarm bells were ringing and I thought, oh, goodness me, now what? So we had a little bit of a drive coming down the canyon and it was then that he went, look, I'm really sorry and made all the appropriate noises to say, you know, I've had a hot, tiring day. And, you know, so I gave him a second chance. And why did you not sort of get out at that stage did you just was he so charming that overcame it hugely charming (laughs) yeah he was he was um and I was I was in a this is all very new and it was all very Mm. different and that whole thing of while I had traveled a lot you know when you meet people in their environment you you kind of have to learn how it works in their Mm. environment because it is their environment and he was somebody that I'd never met somebody like that before you know Mm. his character was quite different and he had this huge charisma and charm but I also saw a vulnerability in him and he was somewhat careful how he introduced the fact that he was Hispanic and American Indian and his father was German-American so he was a real blend but the whole Hispanic thing particularly Mexican 
people could be quite negative towards it. This is sort of an introduction to the racism that you see in America, which I found really, really surprising, having thought that America was this very liberal and open-minded melting pot of all different nationalities. So mm. he was careful how he introduced his nationality to me. And I thought, well, who cares? Mm. And he was like, mm. oh. And he asked me things like, um, do you do drugs? And I went, no. And he went, good. And I went, okay. <laughs> and then he went on to explain how commonplace cocaine was in Colorado. And I was like, never seen cocaine. You know, I was like, duh. <laughs> you know. He must have found it really refreshing, didn't he? He did. He, yeah, he did. And the fact that, I mean, I suppose I, I was very, very different. And they say it's the, the differences that attract these people and, and then they want to change you or harm. Because he was you. very controlling right from the beginning, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. He was. And um and I and I was complicit in just going, Oh, okay, you know, if this is what he needs, if this is what he you know, is this what's gonna make him happy? And maybe naively I should have challenged it more but I do like to keep the peace I'm very much a pacifist I don't mm. I really don't like aggression or arguments and that's that's not realistic at the end of the day you can have differences but I, I wasn't brought up in a volatile family so to have the, that sort of anger shown to me just shuts me up immediately or it used to mm. it doesn't anymore if somebody gets very angry with me I'm just very calm about the whole thing it's just because they're angry doesn't mean to say I got it wrong and I deserved it so when did you start to see a darker side to Rob um, I think, to be honest, it was that second date. Yeah. And you'd think that would be enough. But having never experienced anything like that, mm. it was uncharted waters. Mm. And, um, you know, I have a very rational personality. So I thought, well, you know, if I do X, Y, Z, then it'll all shake out and we're just mm. getting to know each other. But it was the whole... He, he, I didn't realise how he was just changing and modifying my behavior. It was all very, very subtle. Mm. And looking back at it now, I see that I was making excuses for him as well. And mm. Linda had aired quietly, because she's not somebody to to try and sort of cause a, a ruckus, but she quietly was, you know, are you okay? Is everything okay? Because she was my sponsor after all. And so she did see that there were some things in the personality that perhaps weren't healthy. Mm. And I very quickly got married. And I didn't know I was getting married that day. So you look at it so now. So he sprung you into the marriage? He definitely sprung me into the marriage, yes. How long have you been going out? Three months. What? Huh? So what happened? Surprise! <laughs> well, he had asked me to marry him several times and I either hadn't heard or just thought, just gone, you know, I'd been married before, wasn't in any hurry to get married again. And, you know, who knows what the future holds? You know, it's not, it's not on the radar. Mm. He said to me one day, well, why don't we just go to the registry office and just see that if you should ever change your mind, what are the steps would be needed because you're not an American citizen and you're here on a green card and, or a work visa. I didn't have a green card. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. So we went at lunchtime and he picked me up. He was you know, muddy boots and you know, baseball cap on backwards and a cut-off T-shirt and there's me in my high tops, my shorts and straight out of the bench and, and uh, just walked into the registry office and and they said, well, you know, you can do this, this or this. And the, and the third option was 
you can actually get married now by signing on the, the dotted line. And and so he's like, honey, just sign there. And I'm like, oh, all right then. Because I mean... And you didn't think to say no. I mean, it's really hard to understand. It is rather, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Did he fact... have a ring or anything? I mean, was there no. any kind of sense that he'd pre-planned it? No, I, I don't know that he had pre-planned it. I just think he was such an opportunist that he was like, well, actually, we can get married now. And controlling. And controlling because it was what he wanted. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted. But again, I was like, oh, well. And that sounds all very irresponsible and blasé. But I have realised that I have this sort of jump attitude. It's like, oh, just mm-hmm. here's the opportunity. Go for it. Mm-hmm. What's the worst that can happen? I'm much older now and much mm-hmm. wiser. A lot can happen, but I, I quite like that side to my personality. It hasn't completely gone at all. Um, but I think it's also really interesting looking back that actually people who do end up in abusive relationships, it's very hard to see the truth at the time. Can you just explain how you think that happens? Is, are you, you're always looking for the good in the person or you kind of can't believe what's going on? All of that was certainly my experience because I also knew the vulnerable side of Rob. He was, you know, a human being too. He had all the same emotions and he had a lot of life stories that were really, really hard. So what was his childhood like? Well, I've chosen not to go into his story because it's his story and he's not here to validate any of the stories. And, and I think there is a, a privacy that I want to keep. You know. But did you find yourself excusing him because of his mm. childhood and his? That's a great question. And it and it's one that I have had to look really hard at myself to, to try and rationalise everything. And the two questions that I come up with all the time is what's the difference between an excuse and facts? You know, it was the fact is that this is what happened versus an excuse. You know, am I making excuses or am I explaining the facts? I haven't been able to differentiate other than the fact is the fact. This is what he told me happened in his childhood. And a lot of it I did get to hear through other members of the family that did in fact happen. So looking at it going, yeah, I could see how that would affect me badly. Mm -hmm. I can see it doesn't excuse or it doesn't, I can't join the dots as to why that would make a person become violent towards Mm -hmm. another person other than excruciating insecurities, the Mm -hmm. fear of losing the person that you love the most Mm -hmm. and only get rid of them on your terms because he had chosen to dissolve his previous two marriages because they had behaved badly, were his words. Mm. And did he become quite violent quite soon or not? He he became verbally uh, abusive, which uh, I have not experienced before in my life. Mm. Um, the first time he was violent, boy, I was shocked. Um, but I knew I was in trouble. I just, I mm. sensed it the instant the incident happened that triggered him and I did run the wrong way through my house to where there was no escape and I knew as I ran that way what are you doing you know it's really weird when you look back and and you think about all these things and you go how could that have happened so what did happen uh, well basically he he strangled me he had uh 
been a uh, wrestler so he knew all the moves and he knew exactly how to get me and I basically was in the corner and he put his forearm under and he did it in a way that was bone on on my throat to where all I could do was this and he lifted me up and so I he was crashing the windpipe and I just thought well this is it this is not how I imagine my end being and the fury in his eyes was, was I'd never seen anything like that either. So when he let me down and he, he said to me, I will never leave a mark where the people can see, I just thought, uh, you, you better pay attention. Mm. So, Didn't you just think, run? Well, um, I was in another person's country. I was in another country. In all of this sort of conditioning prior this event... I now can look and see how he had made me very dependent on him. How did he do that? Well, it's it's one of those things that I do question is whether whether it was intentional or just the way he operated was that way. Yeah. We know so much more about gaslighting mm. and and these these terms of grooming and codependency and coercive behavior these are terms that i now know mm. i didn't know then mm. i i couldn't rationalize this behavior at all this was a man who loved me mm. so i must have deserved that was how i started to behave of course that's absolute rubbish of course i didn't serve that no way um and did he turn you against your family he tried he did try, and that was not going to happen. He also was very cruel on one visit. We'd come back to the UK, and, and I'm incredibly close to my brother, Steve. And he and Steve were spending a lot of time together. And so we got back to the US, and he said, I'm going to tell you now, your brother's seriously, seriously ill, probably terminal. He's told me this in confidence, so you can't tell anybody. <gasps> so that's my brother who's terminally ill. And was it true? No. No, he just made no. it up. No, he, I mean, you. he was frightening me. He was mm. testing me. And so for a long time, every time I spoke to, to Steve, I'm like, all right, how's your health? And he was like, what's wrong with you, woman? And I was like, so everything's okay. Yeah, everything's fine. After a while, I was just like... Um, and and I, I do remember saying to him, you know, Steve's fine. He went, oh, that's good. Oh, what a relief. So, so you begin to lose your mind, really, don't you? Mm. Yes, you do. Yes, I mean, sadly, you do. And and um, it gets reflected back on you. So anything I would challenge him over, he was able to turn back on me to where my rational brain was beginning to spiral. Um, I realised, looking back at it now, I was going into cope zone it was all about Mm. coping and coping and coping while still very much loving this person and this Mm. is where it's very difficult to explain even as these words come out of my mouth I can understand anyone listening to me going still don't get it Mm. but then Um, there are lots of people who'll be listening who have gone through the same sort of experience mm, who will mm. be getting it yes I have had a lot of people contact me since I've put a lot of this in the book that I've written. For me, this was not about rubbishing my husband's name. It's about understanding the complexities of somebody with this personality disorder. And I'm really keen to try and get to the crux of the matter. Mm. We have wonderful support for people who are on the receiving end of this kind of behaviour. 
if we can limit it be it starting in the first place wouldn't mm. that be a great place to be mm. you know understanding why people are becoming so desperate and unfortunately this behavior is very much on the increase so was there a bit of you that almost wanted to save him and help him uh, yeah I would yeah absolutely because mm. this is somebody I loved so wouldn't you do anything for the mm. person that you love um and just trying again that rationalization of uh, we are together as a, as, a, as a married couple. We are in this thick and thin and everything in between. We were building our lives together and there was lots that was very, very good. So this dark side, when it would appear, just couldn't understand why why did it rear its ugly head? And and there were times when it was more volatile than others and I could, we we both lost our fathers around about the same time, within four or five weeks of each other. We are both very close to our dads. So as individuals, it massively affected us and it ended up with us really, you know, having a hard time with each other to the point where I did come home and I very nearly didn't go back to the US. You know, that was my opportunity to leave. But in the US, I had the animals. They were very much my family. I wasn't going to leave my animals. So I had all of this turmoil going on in my head as to what was the right thing to do. Always try to do the right thing. And did your friends ever say anything? Because I think that also is something that people want to know is if you have a friend in that situation, how do you get involved? What do you say or can you say anything? Or do you become so isolated that you stop seeing anyone? Mm. Yeah, it's tricky. Very, very tricky. After my husband died, the amount of people that came forward and said... We didn't know what to say, Suze, but we had a suspicion. That what should they have said, do you think? Gosh, well, um, hmm. yeah, that's a tough one. Because if anyone would have challenged me, I would have defended. Right. And, and that, again, seems an irrational behaviour. Mm. But this was, you know, my family, my world. And now... I do talk about him threatening my dog in the book and I would have absolutely taken a bullet for that dog. It wouldn't have helped because I'm sure he would have shot the dog afterwards, but that was my determination to protect the the other things in my life that I loved. And if I'd been a mother, I would have absolutely, and I think that's a natural behaviour for a mother anyway, to protect their child at all costs. Uh, But... You know, to to think that he would threaten the things that I love in order to make me behave, just uh, the wickedness behind that mm. sort of behaviour. And yet the other side of him was so remorseful and desperately just wanting to assure me that he, he wasn't all bad. And, mm. and that became very much a conversation we would have in in his last few weeks of life. I mean, he was just sort of really purging all of his his angst and his demons. So he knew what he'd done in the end? He did, yes, which was... Um, I look at the conversations that we had as being very healing. He was just just being very open. And, did he apologise? Yes, he did, yeah. Which I get comfort from because it was our relationship. I don't question why I... I take comfort for that. It was so raw. Um, It was probably because the hard times were so incredibly hard that those tender, honest moments became so much more magnified. Mm. Um, And it was, he knew he was close to death 
So he, if he didn't say it then, he was never going to say it. And I'm really grateful that he said it. But also the power dynamic at that point must have completely changed because mm. he was vulnerable mm. and weak and you were much stronger. Mm. So was there a moment where you felt that tipping over? Yes. Yeah. And it was, um, it was very sad. Mm. It was very, very sad. And I really felt for him because he was a very strong-minded man, physically very, very strong. Mm. Um, he, he never saw a challenge as being unsurmountable. He would take it on. And so as his body became weaker and weaker and he found his ability to do things, I first of all saw it in his eyes and then he looked at me one day and he said, I physically just can't do this anymore. And for him to utter those words took a great deal of, of courage, but also he was done. Mm. And when you look at somebody who you've known being this incredibly strong person, be cut down like this to where that's all they've got to give. Mm. Your heart goes out to them. Mm. I mean, no one, no one should ever go through that. Um, and so my role through all of his illness right from the day he was diagnosed was whatever he wanted, he was going to have. You know, it didn't matter what he wanted. But that is extraordinary because, you know, during your time together, I mean, it was nearly 18 years, wasn't mm. you? Mm. He controlled very much things like what you ate, what you wore, and you didn't mind that at the end. You There was no sense of revenge, was there? That, that, no. Why did you not mind him telling you what to wear or what to eat or how to behave in the end, do you think? I don't think it was right what he did. I was just trying to do the right thing to, to navigate this relationship that I was in and find a happy sweet spot. You know, over time, you would hope that it would calm down and things were slowly getting better. The year before he died, he turned and before his diagnosis, he turned to me and he said, if it all ends tomorrow, I want you to know this is the best life I could ever have hoped for. And it's because of you. I mean, it's one of those really genuine, tender moments. Um, so we were definitely making headway. And I guess the tender moments make you realise it can be good sometimes, even when it's bad. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's because I've been open about the abuse, physical and mental abuse. It's it's become my marriage was an abusive marriage. Mm. I look at it was my marriage was <laughs> challenged with this aspect of abuse. Mm. But it wasn't that wasn't the whole marriage. Yeah. You know, it was a percentage of the marriage. The rest of the marriage was two people doing their very best with their own issues with any relationship. But it sounds as if Rob did a lot of things that would undermine your confidence, like, for example, demeaning you in public. And what kinds of things would he do? Because that must just have been so isolating. He would undermine me in front of other women. Right. To where if I dared to say anything to him, he'd go, oh, you've just been really insecure now, aren't you? Mm don't worry, honey, I will come home. And you're just like making you feel like this big yeah. because none of us want to be told that we're insecure because it does undermine you. Of course it does. And 
And I think we all have that capability of feeling insecure. And you were isolated physically and mentally, yeah, really, weren't you? So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have my family. Mm. I didn't have my friends of old. I didn't have, and I certainly didn't want to worry my family. But you had your pets. and the, But I had my pets. Mm. And, um, you know, the bandit, uh, my dog, my main dog, um, the dog, uh, once in a lifetime dog. Mm. Talk about a fantastic dog. Animals know. They just know, instinctively, they know. So did they try and protect you? A bandit did. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's when Rob threatened right. to shoot him mm. and I said, you know, over my dead body. And um, he had a sort of man cave, didn't he, with lots of pictures of naked women. Did yeah. you have anywhere you could go? I mean, Well, that- I had my workshop mm. um, and, and the, whole, the whole naked women thing was very actually very short-lived because it wasn't in Rob's personality to do that he kind of was just making a point and it's when we had neighbors we were living in town and he had the garage where the boys would come over and drink and he's like yeah I'm just gonna you know he'd got some centerfolds and and he was actually shocked when he came to the UK and he saw in the newspapers there and you would have page three and he's like honey and I'm like, yes so what you know I'd grown up with it who cares it's not a problem going in a news agent's top you know he's, he was just like that's so wrong. Mm. Um, and yet here he was in front of, you know, his his friends going, yeah, this isn't going to, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to put up these centerfolds and da, 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 da. And at this time I was really struggling and my weight had plummeted. I was about seven stone 10. I knew physically, I mean, I was a bag of bones and he looked at me like this and our neighbor was a voluptuous woman and he would often just hang out with her and we had um, one of those pop-up pools and she'd come over and they'd all be playing together. And he'd like, Sue's come out. And he'd go, yeah. And, and I just like, I knew, I mean, I was anorexic. I was just a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, my- Did you seek a doctor at all? I mean, did, or did you ever no. go to anyone medical who looked at you and said, you know, are there any issues? Um, no, no, because that would have been another problem. Mm. Yeah, the whole doctor thing was, you know, there's some quite nasty stories there. So. And you didn't go to the police either? I phoned the police, yeah, I did. The one time on the farm, somebody in our circle of friends used to be a sheriff, as they're called over there, and I phoned him and he said, Suze, you need to call the police. So I did, and the conversation went along the lines of, I explained what was going on, I explained that there were guns and... Uh, the cop that I spoke to said, well, ma'am, one of you's going to jail tonight. Who's it going to be? And I thought, it's all very well, them coming and arresting Rob, but he will get out. And Mm. it doesn't matter if you've Mm. got a restraining order. You're in the middle of nowhere. Mm. No one's going to protect you. So I just went, yeah, don't worry about it. But I knew it had been logged and I did tell him. I said, you know, I've just called the police. Um, and then friends came up and helped defuse the situation. Because there was one time when he said he'd worked out how to mm. kill you, didn't he? Mm. What What did he say? He, um, he uh, on a Saturday, I would uh, spend all day going out um, saddle fitting, going around the barns and things like that. And I never knew what per- sort of person I'd meet on the way back in mm-hmm. uh, to the farm. And he'd been drinking very heavily and obviously got himself in a tailspin over something that, I don't know, who knows what had happened. And he just he just turned to me as soon as I sat down with him and he said, I've, I've worked out how to have you killed. And and then he he he... 
he went into telling me how, and I've never shared what, what mm. yeah, he would have got away with it. It was like, what do I do? Do I stay? Do I sit with him and talk through, trying to ignore the words that just come out of his mm. mouth? Or do I go to the workshop? What did you do? I don't remember. Mm. Or have you just blanked it, do you think? Mm. Yeah, I'm sure I did. Mm. Um, There's a lot of things that I buried very deep. And and in writing the book, some of it has come Mm. to the surface. Um, Because in the book, you talk about some of the good times, the sort of game on the Harley Davidsons. And and have you purposefully tried to remember the positive as well? There was a balance there. I mean, it was a normal relationship, Um, except... It, it does have the extremes, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. normal except for. So, yes, when you think about any relationship that you've been in, there's highs, lows and everything in between. There's the mundane days. There's the day-to-day chug, chug, chug along. My dad said to Rob on one of our visits, good luck, because my dad knew that I, I like to explore. I'm curious. That is probably most people's relationships, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is good and bad. Mm. And when he died of pancreatic cancer, how did you feel? Did you feel very angry in some ways that you'd stayed? Or did you, were you just grieving? Or what what were your, they must have been very complex, the emotions. What were they? Well, I've never had a husband die before. So um, because of how his illness had progressed and, and how our relationship had changed through his illness and all of those moments of packing in as much life as possible. The moment that he died, I felt for him a great sense of relief because his last moments were not great. And I just felt so, so sorry for him because... It was uh, a life cut short. He was only 52 when he died. And I think anyone that witnesses a death like that, you can't help but feel it wasn't supposed to be like that. It is the reality. Um, so, But what uh, did you feel for yourself? Um... I I don't remember being conscious of my feelings at all. I do remember being conscious of of what was happening around me. Things like Bailey, our dog, howling the moment he died. She wasn't even in the room. So that was spooky. And then as soon as I opened the door of the workshop, they ran into the house and they knew he had died. I mean, Mm. they just went to him and they licked him and they jumped on him and they... You can see animals process when death has occurred. And then they calmed down and they just laid and they watched what was happening. It became this suspended moment in time Mm -hmm. where so much happened and yet time stopped. For me, in remembering it, weirdly, is a really beautiful moment. Um, It's life. And do you regret that period of your life or do you feel that actually it was an essential part of who you are now and that it's given you the kind of empathy that you need on the repair shop? Do you think it's made you tougher or more vulnerable? I wouldn't have changed it for the world. I am so grateful for everything that's ever happened because it has given me the opportunity and the um, understanding of people's lives to a degree. Um, 
if somebody shares an experience when you well, every decade for me has got better but I'm now in my 60s and I'm really loving life <laughs> and I'm still very enthusiastic to what's coming around the corner um and I I feel really energized every, every day I still feel incredibly energized and my curiosity is strong and my thirst to learn and I'm active and I'm riding every day. I think having had all these experiences have created the person that I feel I am today mm -hmm. and it is the moment that you're in today that really matters. What do you wish you'd known when you were that little child who just got a pony and you were setting out at age 13 and what would you like to have said to yourself? It'll be all right. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. And our guest on this episode, Susie Fletcher. The series producer is Anya Pierce, and the editor was Callum McRae. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.